On this first Sunday of Lent, we begin a new sermon series that I'm calling Practicing Faith with the Philippians. For those of you who may not have read Philippians before or haven't read it in a long time, it's a letter in the New Testament, just a simple four chapters, one of Paul's handiwork. And I want to invite you at some point during this Lenten season, maybe this week, to find 15 minutes to read the whole letter. It really only takes 15 minutes, and it puts the church into conversation with a church from the first century that was asking similar questions to the ones we'll be asking about how to follow Jesus. We're going to focus for the next few weeks in Lent on this fourth chapter, and each week we'll have a chance to touch on a practice that emerges from Paul's conversation with the church. And so we're going to begin this morning with worship, with Paul's call to stand firm and rejoice. So listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church in the fourth chapter of the Philippian, the letter to the Philippians. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companions, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. And then rejoice again always. I say again, rejoice. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Military chaplain was once going about his rounds and was approached by one of his troops who asked him, Chap, why do we drill? The soldier had approached him, of course, looking for sympathy, and the chaplain did what chaplains do. He listened. He listened for a while as the young man complained. Drills are the worst, he said. Getting up at 5 a.m. is miserable. The running and the grueling fitness tests are no fun, but mostly... He hated how repetitive they were. It was the same thing every day. Is this really necessary, he wanted to know. What was the point, the young man asked. We meet Jesus this morning in a kind of 40-day boot camp, and maybe he was asking some of the same questions. We find Jesus in Matthew's gospel in the wilderness having to navigate all sorts of challenges. 
There were the physical obstacle course that he was on through a desert up to the peak of a mountain, all while hungry and tired. And a spiritual obstacle course as well, testing his faith at every turn. And yet, through this time of temptation, Jesus was being readied for ministry. This was clearly not Jesus' first set of drills. If you've ever read the Gospels from front to back, you know that we get very little of Jesus' story between his birth and the beginning of his ministry. But we do know that he spent time preparing, studying in the temple, learning among rabbis, readying himself for the road. And this morning, driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, this particular set of challenges offered a kind of special preparation for the road to come, a road that we know will end at the cross. And with each temptation, Jesus had to reaffirm his priorities and plant his feet and his spirit firmly with God, trusting in God's provision. It was as if this practice, this singularity of focus on his relationship with God, grounded him in a way that ensured that no matter what happened, he was always tied to the source of hope and life. I'm sure it wasn't easy. The tempter, as we heard, offered many lesser gods as escape routes along the way, promises of comfort and ease of power and control, the kinds of things that we think will fulfill us or at least alleviate our pain when we find ourselves wanting. And as Jesus stood up to each temptation, he forged a deeper and more abiding connection with God, one that he could trust because he had practiced. You see, Jesus knew that these drills mattered. He knew where to focus his time and energy and spirit. He knew where the source of living water and manna in the wilderness came from. And so when Jesus responded to the devil's temptation by saying, worship the Lord and serve only him, he wasn't offering a kind of slick biblical retort. His response came from practice from building a sustaining pattern of living. For Jesus, worship wasn't about going through some kind of liturgical motions. It wasn't about the obligation to come to church on Sunday or to say a particular prayer or sing a particular song. Worship was about the practice of building a deep and abiding relationship with God. To worship is to pattern your life through prayer and study until it is like muscle memory. And Jesus knew that unless you practiced, those practices would shape your mind and heart and life in a way that would enable you to be rooted in God so that you are not tossed to and fro by the storms of life. When worship becomes your grounding, Your spirit can be sustained through anything. Paul knew this too. Unlike Jesus, he chose to learn it the hard way, I think. 
Rather than training for 40 days in the wilderness, we know from Paul's story that he was literally blindsided on the road. You see, Paul thought he had all of the right pedigree, all, that he'd done all the right things. He checked all the boxes that gave him the religious status symbols of the day. He listed them for the Philippians. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, he says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, blameless under the law. But blindsided on that Damascus road, Paul quickly learned that what mattered was not any kind of external labels of righteousness, but the preparation of his heart. And transformed by God, he engaged in practices of faith that gave him rhythms he could trust. He built a life patterned by the rhythms of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And through those practices, Paul learned what it meant to worship the Lord and serve only him, even when it cost Paul his freedom, even when it led to persecution and imprisonment. What resulted was a man of deep faith and a deep spirit. So when Paul says to the Philippians this morning, rejoice always, again I say rejoice, it's not some kind of trite command to just be happy or grin and bear it. It's a witness of the joy that comes from the daily drills that readied him for whatever challenge or suffering might come his way. Paul's story of grounding in practice makes me think of Seth Curry. Not where you thought I was going, I imagine, but hear me out. Curry has the kind of sports pedigree the way Paul had a religious pedigree. He was raised on the court. He played basketball as a kid, and he was good from the very beginning. Good enough to beat the other players on the court as a kid without a lot of practice. But because his dad was an NBA player, his dad kept watching Seth's game, and in middle school, he approached Seth and he said, you're good, but if you want to be great, you're going to have to change your shot. And it's going to take a lot of practice to relearn. Seth was at first resistant, because who wants to go through the pain of a new routine and grueling practice when you're winning? But with some nudging, he realized that his dad was right, and he began to practice every day with a precise routine that he did over and over again until it was muscle memory. He practiced so he was grounded. He practiced so he didn't have to think in critical moments. He practiced for the love of the game. And years later, when he hit that game-tying three-point shot at the buzzer with his eyes closed so that the Warriors beat the Pelicans in 2015, everyone was amazed. And ESPN re-ran the clip day after day as if it was a kind of magic moment but when Curry was interviewed, he said he knew those incredible moments of joy 
because of hours of practice, because of his commitment to the game, to the rhythm of the play, to being able to lean into muscle memory when it mattered. Near as we can tell, Paul was not an athlete, but I think he would have appreciated the dedication of someone like Curry. Paul was zealous in the Lord the way Curry was zealous about basketball. What we know about Paul is that he was bossy and self-righteous and bombastic, and sometimes his letters tie himself and us in theological knots. He would make a better drill sergeant than a military chaplain, I imagine. He's not always an easy guy to love. But Paul, like Curry, is dedicated to what mattered to him. And underneath that seemingly harsh exterior, we find a man of deep faith, a man whose life was changed by his dedication to the risen Lord. And he wants more than anything for the church, for us, to know the joy that comes from practice, from the practices that bind us to Christ. Paul, as we know, has written a lot of letters to the church, to churches that he planted all over the Mediterranean, but the church in Philippi was special. It's a church that has cared for him throughout his journeys, that cared for him when he was in prison. It's one of his success stories. Paul often starts his letters admonishing the church he's writing to about something that they're doing wrong. But his letter to the church in Philippi is more like a love letter. This is a church that gets it, in which there's lots to celebrate. It's a championship-winning church. And you can tell when you read Philippians that Paul loves these people. They have got so much going for them. This is a church that's growing. It's a church with energy and vitality. When I read the letter, I sometimes think he could have written it to Morningside today. I have borrowed lines from Philippians in telling others how I feel about you. Because Paul starts his letter, I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy because of your sharing of the gospel from the beginning until now. I could say the same. So it's out of a place of love and hope that Paul writes to the church. And while all the external factors of the church are cause for celebration, Paul knows that those markers of excellence will only sustain them if their faith is grounded deeply in Christ. And so he calls the Philippians to a deeper faith, to a pattern of living that is shaped around our risen Lord. He wants them and us to dig deeper so that we can access the source that will sustain us no matter what. He wants them to have the practices to lean on when the road gets hard, And he doesn't want them to have to endure any kind of suffering like he has, but he writes to them from prison, wanting them to know that when your relationship with God is deep, when you've done your drills and have rhythms you can trust, no amount of strife can prevent you from access to that true joy.
That's our call this Lent. We often talk about Lent as a journey of penitence, a time when we think about sin and our shortcomings and our need for God's mercy and grace. But Paul invites the Philippians to walk this road this year, not just to wallow in our sin, though Paul's really good at preaching about that, but instead to drill our faith. He calls us to take on practices that ground us, to engage in practices that will build up the kind of muscle memory that we can fall back on, to commit ourselves to faith practices that help us reach deep down to the source, not just so that we're prepared for whatever challenges may come our way, but so that we can know a deeper kind of joy. So each week this Lent, we're going to explore a different practice to help you dig deep. We begin today with worship, and we'll move to study and prayer and service and fasting and feasting. Consider them your spiritual drills for the next six weeks. We're going to help you, don't worry, giving you some kind of tangible practice each week to share in worship and a list of options for you to try at home. Unlike in the Army, we aren't going to wake you up at 5 a.m. and yell drill sergeant style until you comply. This is just an invitation. But it's an invitation to commit to a practice, to put in the time so that you might learn and lean into a pattern that will sustain you. We begin with worship this week because worship sets the tone for all of the rest of our practices. Worship at the end of the day is about our intentional focus on God, about preparing for a life of holiness. That practice is not just about coming to church and going through the motions, but entering into this space with intention, engaging your spirit with the words that we say and we sing and we hear, sitting in silence in a way that lets God's word penetrate your soul. So today our drill will be different than usual and we'll offer up a kind of guided meditation, a chance for you to walk with God in a way that helps you focus your spirit on what God might be offering each of you this season. Some of you are going to hate it as much as that soldier complaining in the military chaplain's office. Others of you might just discover a new way to access a part of yourself and God's spirit that will sustain you. Perhaps all of us, like Curry, need an invitation, a reminder, a charge, a challenge to commit to a practice that will refine your spiritual jump shot for this season. Paul told the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord, refining those practices that we know so well. Jesus said to the devil, worship the Lord and serve only him because he was grounded in practices that connected him to God. Both of them point us to a life of holiness that comes from the rhythms of worship that change our hearts and offer us joy. And as for that military chaplain, what was his response to the soldier complaining about drills? Something not that different from Del Curry to his son Seth or from Paul to the church. 
He looked out at that soldier with a sympathetic smile, and he said, why do we drill? We drill so that in a moment of crisis, you don't have to rise to the challenge. You fall immediately into the rhythms you can trust. Amen.